According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me one final time in the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 39. This is day 47 in our Through the Bible reading. Day 47, we're going to cover the remainder of chapter 39. We've covered about half of the chapter already, 31 verses. We'll do the remainder of chapter 39 and then chapter 40, and then uh, uh, also a paragraph out of Numbers chapter 9. Before we begin, let's take a moment for silent prayer, calling upon our Father in His faithfulness to bless our time of study. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we do come before you once again so thankful for your faithfulness and thankful for this time of study and thankful for brothers and sisters that are studying to show themselves approved. I thank you for this daily Bible reading and all the grace that you have provided abundantly, exceeding abundantly, beyond all we could ask or think. Father, we thank you for the Exodus, the book of Exodus, and uh, the doctrine that we're learning. Continue to bless our studies. We thank you and praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, so we have the statement that's made, thus all the work of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting was completed, and the sons of Israel did according to all that the Lord had commanded Moses, so they did. All right, so everything is done, constructed, finished, ready to go. They now need to start operating, they need to start functioning, which means they have to ordain the priest, they have to consecrate, they have to anoint the temple, they have to, uh, the, uh, the altar, they have to anoint all the furnishings. There's still quite a process of what has to happen here, and we're going to see this process unfold in, uh, in these chapters, also in the book of Numbers as we get to that here this morning, or this afternoon. The completed elements of the tabernacle were brought to Moses for his inspection and his blessing of their labor. Okay, and it's a good thing Moses was doing this and not me, because I'd look at it and say, uh, yeah, okay, <laughs> looks good to me, all right, you know, what do I know? I'm just looking at it. But the, uh, the inspection and the blessing of their labor. So verse 33, they brought the tabernacle to Moses, the tent and all its furnishings, its clasps, its boards, its bars, its pillars, its sockets, the covering of ram skins dyed red, the covering of porpoise skins, the screening veil, the ark of the testimony and its poles and the mercy seat, the table, all its utensils, all the bread of the presence, the pure gold lampstand with its arrangement of lamps, all its utensils, the oil for the light. It goes on and on and on. They're bringing every single item. Everything has to pass Moses' inspection, Moses' review. And did they do this all on the same day? Did they do this all on the same event? Or did they bring it for inspection as each item was finished and then they stored it away somewhere and had it, uh, had it ready to go? We don't have that kind of detail. This is just what's being described here. The gold altar, the anointing oil, the fragrant incense, the veil for the doorway of the tent, the bronze altar, its bronze grating, its poles, all its utensils, the laver, its stand, the hangings for the court, pillars and sockets and screen, for the gate of the court, cords and pegs, we haven't seen a lot of cords mentions, but here's the cords and pegs. All the equipment for the service of the tabernacle for the tent of meeting. Woven garments for ministering in the holy place. The holy garments for Aaron the priest. The garments of to his sons to minister as priests. So the sons of Israel did all the work according to all the Lord had commanded Moses. And Moses examined all the work. And behold, they had done it just as the Lord had commanded. This they had done, so Moses 
bless them. And I, you know, at, at what point, you know, would Moses have looked at it and said, oh, that's wrong, you know, or second-guessed Bezalel, or, you know, did he have a tape measure out? Was he making sure that the cubits were, were lined up? I don't know. But the point is, it is curious, though, that you have, um, like today, we would think about deacons and elders, right? We would think about the, 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 the work that's been getting done, and then the inspection, the oversight, the supervision that happens on a spiritual basis, whereby the pastor, you know, oversees. He's not micromanaging and he's not nitpicking and he's not, you know, uh, rebuking so that they do it better or whatever, but he is supervising and observing and approving the, uh, the completion of what was done as entrusted. You know, these are duties as entrusted. Our, my deacons and deaconesses are exercising their responsibilities, are fulfilling their responsibilities as designated. See, and, and the, the spiritual leadership needs to be watching that and making note of everything that's done well so that God gets all the glory and these faithful servants are encouraged that what they're doing has eternal value. And so you imagine when they, they come by and they present this to Moses and Moses gives the thumbs up, that's going to be huge for these, these craftsmen, these seamstresses and all the other workers for the things they're doing, that uh, when Moses gives the thumbs up, not only does he approve, he also blesses them. Okay? And the pronouncement of blessing, when a prophet of God pronounces blessing and says, bless you, Okay, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you. We have, we have rote blessings that are given in scripture. And then we have, we presume are just, uh, contemporaneous, you know, blessings that just come, uh, from the spoken word of the prophet as, uh, the Lord leads and whatnot. But when he says bless you, that's, that, that means so much more than it's used today. You know, today somebody sneezes and you say, oh, bless you. Right, or someone coughs, or someone, you know, we just say, God bless you. And, and for us, it's just a cultural response to somebody sneezing. And we don't realize this, the pronouncement by God's prophet. He is the mouthpiece of God himself. And he pronounces a blessing that has a spiritual weight to it. And, and we, we should learn to appreciate that more and more. Just like we should also be careful on the cursings. Okay, that when we pronounce a cursing, that as God's mouthpiece, as God's spokesman, speaking on behalf of God, if, if we're going to curse what God hasn't cursed, we're in trouble. Okay? And if we're going to bless what God hasn't blessed, we're in trouble. So these principles of blessing and cursing, I want us to pay more attention to these in the, in the coming classes, because we're going to have them in Numbers, in, in Leviticus, in Deuteronomy, the blessings and the cursings. It comes up as a fundamental uh, area for Balaam in the conflict there with Balaam, because he's being hired to curse Israel and he's blessing them instead. We need to learn these lessons because there's applications in the church age for our blessings and our cursings. So stay tuned for that. All right, well, that's chapter 39. We have points four and five in the outline. Remember, you might have noticed I'm trying to maintain consistency, giving each chapter a separate outline. So if a chapter divides across a couple days' readings, um, that's fine. We divide the chapter across a couple days' readings, but we keep the outline consistent. So if the outline from yesterday ended with point three, then the outline for today begins with point four as we continue the narrative from the same Bible chapter, in this case, Exodus chapter 39. So the completed elements of the tabernacle were brought to Moses for his inspection and his blessing of their labor. The blessing of their labor, and we can appreciate that. The uh, pronouncement of blessing, 
which happens 72 times in Genesis. I mean, there's blessing everywhere all through Genesis, right? We have the Jacob and Esau fighting over the blessing, and we have the, uh, the various blessings that occurred throughout the whole book of, of Genesis. Um, and then it comes back again in Deuteronomy. But what happens is, when you study blessings, you see 72 times in Genesis, only five in Exodus 1 through 38, so it like plummets. It's like, I mean, yeah, it's used five times, but really that's practically nothing compared to the 72 times that we had it in, uh, in Genesis. And so it's an, a noteworthy absence. Exodus is not really the book of blessings, okay? But it does have five uses in the first 38 chapters. But here, though, where Moses is blessing the tabernacle craftsmen, it comes up here, I think, in a significant way. And it should be parallel. It should be studied in connection with Leviticus 9 and with Numbers chapter 6, where the scarcity of usage is remarkable. This is where less is more. This is where when you're studying the scripture and you find that you, you're in a desert, you're in a, you're in a gap, you're in a bubble where there's no, practically no uses at all. Then when it does show up, it's very obvious like, oh, look at this. This is an unusual use of blessing that can be found in Exodus or an unusual uh, term of blessing as it's found in Leviticus or it's now found in Numbers because these are the chapters in between where really the, the, the baraka, the, the, the verb is barak and the noun is baraka, where the baraka usages practically disappear. Okay, And so those things grab your attention as well. Let me just show you what I'm talking about here. When you're pulling up Barak as a uh, verb and then Baraka as a noun, I'm just going to limit here to the verb. And I'm going to search the Bible for Barak. And here's the uses where you find it. And then I'm going to pull it up in the charts. And uh, some things jump out at you right away, right? You see a couple of huge towers that you find in Genesis and Psalms. Well, that makes sense. Psalms is 150 chapters long. It's a huge book. Genesis is 52 cha- or 50 chapters long. It's a huge book. And then uh, Deuteronomy has quite a bit. But that, that middle between Genesis and Deuteronomy is a, is a real trench. It's a real um, gap, if you will. Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. And, the, and the, don't, don't let this orange bar here for Numbers um, distract you. It's a little bit misleading. Because the 17 uses there in Numbers actually come, let me change this as well. I'm going to redo this search, and instead of the Bible, I'm just going to search the, uh, the law, the Torah, Genesis to Deuteronomy. All right, so there's my results, there's my search results, now I can bring up my charts. All right, is that better? I like it better. Because here's what I'm trying to show you. Um, Genesis has a lot. Deuteronomy has not as much as Genesis, but it still has more than Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. Okay? And really the Numbers one is so misleading as well. So if I change it from count per book, let me do count per chapter. And in Numbers, you're going to notice Numbers is pretty low until you get to Numbers 22, 23, and 24. Because in 22, 23, and 24 in Numbers, what do you have there? 
That's, that's, the, that's the Balaam section of the book of Numbers. Okay? In 22, 23, and 24, in those chapters of Numbers, you have Balak uh, who's hiring Balaam to curse Israel. And instead of cursing, he's blessing. And so the words of blessing and cursing, they happen a lot in chapters 22, 23, and 24. If you took those chapters out of Numbers, the Numbers is just as pitiful as, as Leviticus and Exodus as it comes to Barak. Okay, the blessing verb that we're looking at in this study. Okay, and really, what you could do too is come back in and search for the the verb barak and the noun baraka, and do that as a combined search for the the five books of the Pentateuch for the law, and you're going to see this pattern. Okay, and this is what I'm describing in the point of study that is um, point five in the outline. The pronouncement of blessing is not so common in Exodus. The uh, Moses' blessing here, when it says Moses blessed them, it just jumps out at us because it's, it's not a common thing in the book of Exodus. And we, we, should, we do see it though in a connection and in a parallel and a tandem with Leviticus 9 and Numbers 6 where the scarcity of usage is remarkable. During this whole Baraka drought, Right between Genesis and Deuteronomy, between this whole Baraka drought, we have Exodus 39 where Moses is blessing the craftsmen. We have Leviticus chapter 9, verses 22 and 23 where Moses and Aaron are blessing the people. Aaron uh, lifted up his hands toward the people and blessed them. This is Leviticus now 9:22. And uh, lifted up his hands toward the people and blessed them. And he stepped down after making the sin offering and the burnt offering and the peace offering. Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting. And when they came out and blessed the people, the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. And we'll get to that when we get to the uh, events there of uh, Leviticus chapter 9. Likewise, Numbers chapter 6, the Lord bless you and keep you. This is the blessing, the formula that they're taught. This is the rote formula that they're given in order to pronounce the blessings upon the people. So speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, Thus you shall bless the sons of Israel. You shall say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance on you and give you peace. So this is a, a, a recitation. They can memorize this, they can recite this. This would then be spoken by the high priest to the people and this would be the, uh, the blessing that he would bestow. So they shall invoke my name on the sons of Israel and then I will bless them. The human speaks it, he's just invoking God himself as the one that, that does the blessing. Are we clear on that? Humans don't bless just by saying so. I can't make you be blessed if I tell you you are. But I can pronounce the blessing, I can wish for it, I can pray for it, I can request of God, and God is the one who gives the blessing. That's the nature of saying, God bless you. It's a prayer on my part, it's a wish on my part or your part, whoever it is that's saying the blessing. So when Moses is blessing the people, he's pronouncing it, he's saying it, but he is, his, it's his wish prayer to God that God actually does the, the activity of the blessing as a reward, as a thankfulness, as an appreciation for the faithful service that's been executed uh, on his behalf. So a blessing in, uh, in those regards. 
All right. By the time we get to the book of Deuteronomy, again, it's going to ramp back up. We'll have 39 uses of, of Barakah and uh, Barak in, uh, in Deuteronomy. All right. That gets us now to Exodus chapter 40. It's finished. Now we need to put it up. Okay? All the pieces are ready to go. We just have to put it in place and erect it, put it up, have it standing, have it uh, have the uh, the places placed where uh, the things furnishings placed where they belong to have everything uh, up and running and, and ready to go for when the priesthood itself is ready to go. I mean, does it make any sense to have the tabernacle built and ready to go, and the priesthood hasn't even been ordained yet, or the uh, the anointing hasn't happened yet? The sacrifices haven't been given yet. We still need a whole lot of blood, a whole lot of death, a whole lot of uh, uh, smearing of, uh, of oil and so forth before this um, uh, uh, I wanted to say Death Star is fully operational. That's not right. Before this tabernacle is fully operational. Okay. So chapter 40, Moses instructs Israel to erect the tabernacle on New Year's Day. Okay, that's significant. What's New Year's Day? Remember they they got a new calendar when they left Egypt. They were told that this month will be the beginning of months to you. Okay, they do have a civil New Year's Day, but there's also the religious New Year's Day. What do you think they're going to follow for the tabernacle? It's the religious, it's the spring. This is the month when they're getting ready now to have their second Passover. The first one was the day they left Egypt. Now it's a year later. And they're ready for their first, po- their first post-slavery Passover in the wilderness, outside of Egypt. So the month of Passover slash Exodus was established for the first of the months for Israel. Thus an entire year has gone by since the parting of the Red Sea and the Exodus of Israel out of Egypt. A whole year later, and where are they? Ooh, that was bad. That was, uh, was that me? All right. Sometimes if, uh, okay, I won't do that again. <laughs> it can get a short sometimes in the microphone uh, thingy here. All right. The, uh, a year has gone by. This is now their first Passover in freedom. It was Passover when they were delivered out of Egypt. Of course, they walked through the Red Sea and they're at Mount Sinai a year later. Okay, three days, they're the three-day walk out of Egypt to get to, to Mount Sinai, all right? It's an 11-day walk from Sinai to Kadesh Barnea, but they haven't made it those 11 days yet because they're still parked at the mountain. They're getting the instructions. Moses is getting the law, and the construction of the tabernacle is taking place. So where did they get all the acacia wood? Where did they get all the gold? Was this plunder that they brought with them out of Egypt? Much of it was, I'm sure. The wood was harvested from, from Sinai. Maybe Sinai was more woody than it was than it is now. Maybe it was more woody back then, and, uh, or it was more woody until Israel made a tabernacle out of it, <laughs> and now, now it's a desert, all right? We don't know how much was forested of that peninsula back in that day. All right, but a year has gone by. So the Lord spoke to Moses saying, on the first day of the first month, you shall set up the tabernacle of the tent of meeting. So they know what their D-day is. They know what the target is for the, the setup of this. You shall place the ark of the testimony there and you shall screen the ark with the veil. Okay, right now it's just a constructed piece of furniture and it's okay to look at it and it's okay to touch it and it's not yet been consecrated. It's not yet been made holy where you smear the oil on it and you put it within the veil. As soon as you get it in there, then you better not be looking at it. You better not be touching it, okay? 
And this is the instruction. So for this New Year's Day, on the first day of the first month, put the ark in the uh, Holy of Holies and put the screen of the ark with the veil. All right. You shall bring in the table and arrange what belongs on it. And you shall bring in the lampstand and mount its lamps. So these are the furnishing items for the outer holy place, the first compartment, right? The uh, table and the, and the lamp. And you shall mount its lamps. Moreover, you shall set the gold altar of incense before the Ark of the Testimony and set up the veil for the doorway to the tabernacle. And so the Ark is in the inner compartment. The, uh, the, the screen is in front of it. The Ark of the Table of Incense is right in front of that veil, positioned adjacent to that curtain. And then you have the, uh, the, uh, the veil that's the, the doorway to the tabernacle itself. And you shall set the altar of the burnt offering in front of the doorway of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting. The altar of the burnt offering. All right, so this is in the outer courtyard and it's right inside the gate as you walk in. It's unavoidable. The idea that you can enter the courtyard and somehow miss this altar is just not going to happen because it's the first thing you get to right when you enter the, the tabernacle courtyard, right when you enter that gate. Then you shall set the laver between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it. So that's positioned between the altar and the tent. And uh, for the priests that are going into that tent, then they've got to walk right past it. And that's the reminder that they've got to cleanse themselves before they go inside. You shall set up the court all around and hang up the veil for the gateway of the court. Then you shall take the anointing oil. Okay, so once everything's positioned, everything is positioned and placed where it belongs, now it's time to start smearing. Time to start applying the anointing oil. Take the anointing oil. This whole idea of anointing. It's smearing. Okay? It's, it's like, it, it's really the fundamental issue of the Christ. The Christ is the anointed one. The Messiah, the Mashiach, is the anointed one. He's the one that's done been smeared. Okay? Smeared by the Father. Set apart and smeared. Anointed for this, uh, for this service. So take the anointing oil and anoint the tabernacle and all that is in it. The whole thing. Okay? Shall consecrate it and its furnishings, it shall be holy. When the oil is applied, then that's not a regular altar anymore. That's not a regular laver anymore. That's not a regular tent anymore. Those aren't regular pegs. Those aren't regular strings or or cords. As soon as it's smeared, it's no longer profane. It's now holy. It's now sanctified and consecrated. Before it's smeared, it's a, it's a platter, it's a dish, it's a cup, it's a utensil, it's a whatever. But as soon as it's smeared, now it's a sanctified vessel as unto the Lord. Okay? And this is why it's so, it was so blasphemous when in Babylon, when King Belteshazzar was bringing out the, the plunder from Nebuchadnezzar's destruction of the temple, and he's bringing out the plunder, he's bringing out the holy vessels, and he's hosting a, a basically a, a, a big drinking dash, right? With all of his wives and all of his concubines and all of his friends and everybody and they were just drinking out of these holy vessels as if they're just, uh, you know, for, for pagan celebrations. No, they are sanctified, they are holy. So you shall uh, consecrate it, all its furnishings, it shall be holy. You shall anoint the altar of the burnt offering, all its utensils, consecrate the altar, the altar shall be most holy. You shall anoint the laver and its stand and consecrate it. Then you shall bring Aaron and his sons to the doorway of the tent of meeting and wash them with water. We had instructions that were given earlier, but now it's going to happen. They're going to be washed. They're going to be put to work. 
And so before they even go on duty, um, in full public view of, of, of everybody, they're getting washed. And uh, you shall put the holy garments on Aaron and anoint him and consecrate him that he may minister as priest to me. You shall bring his sons and put tunics on them. You shall anoint them even as you have anointed their father that they may minister as priests to me. So there's the washing, then there's the anointing. The anointing will qualify them for a perpetual priesthood throughout their generations. Thus Moses did, according to all that the Lord had commanded him, so he did. So this is uh, an entire year that's gone by and everything is now set up and ready to go. Moses supervises the actual erection of the tabernacle in verses 17 through 33. So he has the instructions and, and he's going to be obedient on this. In the first month of the second year, on the first day of the month, the tabernacle was erected. And guess what Moses is going to do? Spoiler alert, we're about to read the verses that are going to say the exact same thing as the verses we just read. What God told him to do, he's going to do. So Moses erected the tabernacle laid its sockets and set up its boards, inserted its bars, erected its pillars. Do I think Moses physically did all this? Do I think he physically? No. I think he supervised. I think he was walking through, praying, encouraging, supervising. As all this was done under his immediate supervision. He spread the tent over the tabernacle and put the covering on the tent on top of it, just as the Lord had commanded Moses. He took the testimony and put it into the ark. And attached the poles. So he took the testimony. What's that? The tablets. There you go. And, and put them into the ark. And attached the poles to the ark. Put the mercy seat on top of the ark. He brought the ark into the tabernacle. And set up the veil for the screen. And screened off the ark of the testimony. Just as the Lord had commanded Moses. So all of this is being put into place. Put the table in the tent of meeting. On the north side of the tabernacle. Outside the veil. The arrangement of bread in order on it before the Lord, just as the Lord had commanded Moses. So how are these loaves arranged? What's the procedures there? Some of this information is not contained in Exodus, but he had that information that was given to him. Then the lampstand on the south side. In the tent of meeting, opposite the table, on the south side of the tabernacle. And he lighted, and remember it's ten cubits across, so you know you got, you got room there. He lighted the, ta- uh, the lamps before the Lord, just as the Lord had commanded Moses. Then he placed the gold altar in the tent of meeting in front of the veil. That's a, kind of an unusual term for it. Normally it's called the altar of incense, but sometimes you know it's this gold altar. Remember the altar out front is covered in bronze, not covered in gold. Acacia wood covered in gold is the, uh, the altar of incense. It's called the gold altar here. In the tent of meeting in front of the veil. And he burned fragrant incense on it, just as the Lord had commanded Moses. The exact recipe that was provided and manufactured by the skillful perfumers as this process was done. And he set up the veil for the doorway of the tabernacle. Set up the altar of burnt offering before the doorway of the tabernacle. So now he's going out to the courtyard. And now the big uh, burnt offering altar has to be constructed. Making sure I'm not going too far. Now we've got to get down through verse 33. All right. Set the altar, the burnt offering, before the doorway of the tabernacle. That's the gate of the outer courtyard, okay? And the tent of meeting and offered it, the burnt offering and the meal offering, just as the Lord had commanded Moses. He placed the laver between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it for washing. From it, Moses and Aaron and the sons washed their hands and their feet 
when they entered the tent of meeting and when they approached the altar, they washed just as the Lord had commanded Moses. Some of this is awkward to us because Moses is writing about himself in the third person. So Moses is doing this just as the Lord had commanded Moses, right? Um, Anyway, he's the author and he's putting this on paper, but I think we understand it for what it's saying. So he erected the court all around the tabernacle and the altar and hung up the, the veil for the gateway of the court. Thus Moses finished the work. Now look what happens. Everything is in place. The things are smeared. They're anointed. The priests are ready to go. It's like, you know, kickoff of the biggest football game of the year. Okay? Is that coming up sometime? Does the NFL still exist? Is that still a thing? Somebody told me the Cincinnati Bengals are in the Super Bowl, and I laughed. And then I realized they weren't joking. Is that true? Man, am I out of touch. I thought the Cincinnati Bengals were just a laughing stock. Apparently not. Where have I been? All right. Once completed, the glory of Yahweh filled the tabernacle. This is described a couple of times in a couple of different ways. It's good to see the different descriptions for what they are. I don't think they conflict or they're contradictory. But it is interesting to see the different descriptions when they're found. Because he records it multiple times. Moses actually records this event in Exodus. He records it in Leviticus. He records it in Numbers. And he's the author of all these books. Okay, And he allows himself to overlap in the time frame for a lot of these books. Not a problem with that. We, we just spot it for what it is. So the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So as we look through verses 34 through 38, we're going to see this. The glory with the cloud. Okay, They're not pure synonyms, but oftentimes they're used uh, interchangeably. Okay, The cloud by day, the pillar of fire by night. But the idea of glory is in the cloud, but it's something beyond the cloud. It's, it's Like I said, I think the Shekinah itself is the personal presence of God the Father. Uh, but be that as it may. So the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Those are two separate activities. Cloud covering, glory filling. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So on this inaugural occasion, on this opening day ceremony, this was thick cloud. This was a lot of smoke, a lot of glory, a lot of, it was so full that Moses wasn't going in there. Okay. This is, and that's different from what a normal daily opportunity would be. Because on a normal basis, the, uh, the, the, the glory is, is above the cherubim or below the cherubim, above the mercy seat. It's within the Holy of Holies. And, and Moses can go in there. Aaron can go in there. The priest can go into the, to the first chamber. They can stand before the altar of incense. They can speak to the Lord and, and hear the reply coming through that veil. That's how they normally function. But not on this day. On this day, the cloud and the glory was so powerful and so filling that they were expelled. They couldn't even get in. Okay? I kind of envision this like a physical, tangible, you know, a, a cloud, a glorious cloud that was just so um, thick that, that there was no room for them inside there. All right. And then a description of their daily travels. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up over the tabernacle, the sons of Israel would set out. If the cloud was not taken up, they did not set out. 
until the day when it was taken up. So normally if it's just a camping day, it's a sit-here day, or a sit-here week, or a sit-here month, or a sit-here year. However long, when the cloud sat there, they knew they weren't moving. When they woke up and the cloud rose and they said, oh, this is moving day, then okay, it's time to go. And the cloud would arise over top and that was their signal. All right, we're moving out today. And uh, they'd start packing up and getting ready to go. If the cloud was not taken up, they did not set out until the day when it was taken up. So this was their signal. And throughout their journeys, you get the idea that the closing chapter here, as Moses is writing this, he's writing this with a tremendous amount of hindsight. He's attaching these verses to the end of chapter 40, uh, almost like an epilogue with a, with a lot of hindsight from later in his life, maybe at the end of his life. He's attaching these verses to the end of, of, uh, of this book. So throughout all their journeys, the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and there was fire in it by night in the sight of the house of Israel. The pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire was their, their guiding mechanism for the whole 40-year wandering. We don't know it's 40 years yet, but we'll get to that when we get to Kadesh Barnea and the failure on that. So, points of study from uh, Exodus chapter 40. Once completed, the glory of Yahweh filled the tabernacle. Glory remains with Israel until they depart from him in idolatry. It is a, the, the, the arrival and departure of glory is significant. In fact, the naming of Ichabod comes up here in 1 Samuel chapter 4. It means no glory. When the tabernacle when the, is plundered, when the ark is captured, the Philistines for a while have custody of the ark. It's the baddest mistake, I mean the worst mistake they ever made. They, they regret kidnapping the thing. They can't be happy enough to return it as quickly as they can. But in these early days, uh, uh, they do capture the ark. And, uh, and then the high priest dies, his sons die. It's a, it's a sad event that happens here when Eli falls off and dies. But she called the boy Ichabod. This is his daughter-in-law who's pregnant at the time that uh, the two sons of, of, of Eli are, are killed. Anyway, so she gives birth to the boy and she names him Ichabod, meaning no glory. Saying the glory has departed from Israel because the ark of God was taken and because of her father-in-law and her husband. She said the glory has departed from Israel for the ark of God was taken. The presence of the glory or the absence of the glory was very noteworthy throughout Israel's history. And when they get the ark back, what a thrill, what a day. Okay, and, and David's going to bring, David's going to be leading a parade, he's going to be dancing, his, his wife doesn't approve, he, he's making her look bad. Um, you know, there's, there's, but he's thrilled. He is happy and celebrating and, and neat things are happening. The glory does return when the king of peace builds the temple. And so the tabernacle eventually is replaced with the, te- is replaced with the temple. Solomon is the king of peace. His name means peace. And um, David was not allowed to build the temple because he was a man of war. Solomon is a man of peace and he's allowed to build the temple. Together, David and Solomon are a picture of Jesus Christ, both in the Armageddon conquest and in the millennial, the millennial kingdom. But it happened when the priest came from the holy place, the cloud filled the house of the Lord, so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. Very similar phenomena to when Moses finishes the tabernacle. That glory is so overpowering, it's pushing the priests outside until, until that dissipates and they're allowed to resume their duties. But that's at the building of Solomon's temple in 1 Kings chapter 8. It's actually going to depart again during the captivity and Ezekiel gets to witness this from Babylon. 
He's a captive in Babylon, but God brings him back in a vision to Jerusalem to watch the glory depart in, uh, in Ezekiel chapter 10. And the glory departs from the threshold of the temple and it actually moves to the east and then it moves to the Mount of Olives and then it ascends from the Mount of Olives in uh, the glory there, Ezekiel 10.18 and Ezekiel 11.23. The glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood over the mountain which is east of the city. Coincidence? But this is the, the Mount of Olives where Jesus also ascended uh, in Acts chapter 1. Okay? But this is in 586 B.C. or 587 B.C. As, um, or even prior to that as the glory departs before Nebuchadnezzar's destruction. And Ezekiel gets to see it happen. The glory returns when the King of Peace, that is the Lord Jesus Christ, builds the Millennial Temple in Ezekiel 43 verses 1 through 5. And when you read Ezekiel 40 through 48, the final nine chapters of Ezekiel are all de- dealing with the coming millennial temple. Okay? The future millennial temple. Not the temple of Antichrist, not the temple that's, that's, uh, that's uh, despoiled during the, the tribulation, but the millennial temple. The temple that's going to require significant topographical changes because the current temple mount isn't big enough for the foundation of the millennial temple as is described here in Ezekiel. But the glory of the God of Israel was coming from the way of the east, and his voice was like the sound of many waters, and the earth shone with his, with his glory. Okay. I hope I have a spare. I'll look for that before Tuesday. If I can put a, a spare uh, rope on here, cord, whatever you call it, cable, wire, Whatever it is that has the short in it, it's making that cackling noise. Anyway, there's glory in the future millennial temple. You realize when Jesus was on the earth in the first advent, there was no glory in that temple. There was no Ark of the Covenant in that temple. When they came back from Babylon, there was no Ark, there was no glory. It was a temple that Ezra built. Herod uh, expanded it, remodeled it. There was no glory in that temple because the God-man was walking this earth and he visited that temple on, on several occasions. In fact, he got rather mad on a few of those occasions and started flipping tables over and, and, uh, and, and so forth. But the glory is coming back and it's going to come back in the millennium. The glory is the manifestation of God as the unapproachable light, 1 Timothy 6.16, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light whom no man has seen or can see. To him both be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. The idea of the Shekinah glory is the idea of unapproachable light. The idea if anybody goes into that Holy of Holies, you know, other than the high priest on the Day of Atonement, it's, it's just a nuclear incineration. I mean, he would just immediately be, be exploding with the, the glory of God. That's why I think it's, it's curious how the Levites moved the thing. All right, and the, the, uh, what's imagined to be at least what's recorded in the legends and traditions about how they would actually come in and how they would collapse the veil over on top of the ark without looking at it, without touching it, how it is that they could cover it with the coverings so that they don't look at it, they don't touch it, how it is that they can put the, the poles were already in there, but how they could, again, push that veil down to cover the ark before they had to move it out, before the Levites would move it out. Anyway, unapproachable light. Leviticus 16. This is the warning. 
The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron when they had approached the presence of the Lord and died. You know, Nadab and Abihu are the first two casualties of this serious deal. So the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron, tell your brother Aaron that he shall not enter at any time into the holy place inside the veil. You don't just go in there because you feel like it. Uh, before the mercy seat, which is on the ark, or he will die. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. He's not the mercy seat. Jesus is the mercy seat. I believe this is God the Father who is that cloud of glory above the mercy seat. Only on the day of atonement, only on that one day, only with the the right sacrifices being made. He's got to make sin offerings. He's got to make these burnt offerings for himself, for the nation. Then he can go in. Then he can uh, smear the blood on the mercy seat. Then he can minister before the Lord. And then when he's done, he's got to come back out again. So it is a death penalty for anybody, even Aaron, other than on the Day of Atonement. That's the one day that Aaron has the exception to go in and stand before the Lord. All right, so the book of Exodus closes with a summary statement. The summary statement descriptive of Israel's travel protocol. And this is the, the, um, the mechanism by which he led them. Okay? I'm calling this the glorious pillar system. They have a glorious pillar system. And that glorious pillar was a cloud during the day. The glorious pillar was a was fire at night, so it was visible day or night. But in that glorious pillar system, that GPS system that led them through the wilderness, all right? You guys don't even know how hard I worked on that. I mean, come on. Somebody was talking about Moses was the first one with a tablet that downloaded data from the cloud and whatever, you know, just silly little jokes like that and whatever. I said, okay, I can play this game. Let's, let's get involved with the glorious pillar system. But this is the mechanism. If it's just sitting there, in other words, if it's resting on top of the, on top of the tent, then they know they're not going anywhere. The cloud is resting on top of the tent. The glory is inside the tent, uh, you know, hovering above the, the uh, mercy seat and beneath uh, the wings of the cherubim, then it's not a travel day. But if it rises, okay, and I imagine it could, it could even arise at nighttime too. They might have a night movement if they need to at some point. But if, as long as the cloud was down, they're not moving. If the cloud rises, they're moving. And so, uh, you know, you can just envision this. The cloud rises. We know it's time to go. They pack and whatever. When they're packed and ready and when they're in their marching order, then the cloud starts to move. And they start to follow whatever direction the cloud's taking them. Okay, And that's the order of march. They have to follow in that order. We're going to talk about that when the tribes are put in their marching order. Because it starts with a camping order, which then becomes a marching order when, uh, when they set out. Now some of this comes up in Numbers chapter 9. On the day that the tabernacle was erected. So different book of the Bible. Okay, we're done with Exodus now, but we're finding some parallel texts, including Numbers chapter 9. And Ron Rhodes puts this paragraph in this day's reading. So on the day that the tabernacle was erected, the cloud covered the tabernacle, the tent of the testimony, and in the evening it was like the appearance of fire over the tabernacle until morning. So it was continuously. The cloud would cover it by day, the appearance of fire by night. Whenever the cloud was lifted from over the tent, afterward the sons of Israel would set out. And in the place where the cloud settled down, there the sons of Israel would camp. 
At the command of the Lord, the sons of Israel would set out. At the command of the Lord, they would camp. As long as the clouds settled over the tabernacle, they remained camped. So it's either a marching day or a camping day, but as God indicates, they're going to obey. Even when the cloud lingered over the tabernacle for many days, the sons of Israel would keep the Lord's charge and not set out. So if, if he just camps there for a week or a month or a year, or whatever it is, many days, all right, here we are. This is where we're staying. If sometimes the cloud remained a few days over the tabernacle, according to the command of the Lord, they remained camped. Then according to the command of the Lord, they set out. If sometimes the cloud remained from evening until morning, when the cloud was lifted in the morning, they would move out of it. Or if it remained in the daytime and at night, whenever the cloud was lifted, they would set out. So again, it could be a nighttime march, but that's okay. They got the fire. It's lighting up things. They can see where they're going and, and off they go in the night. Whether it was two days or a month or a year that the cloud lingered over the tabernacle, staying above it, the sons of Israel remained camped and did not set out. But when it was lifted, they did set out. All right. Sorry about that. I get animated. I got to just stand still and not breathe. So uh, this is their this is their method, and maybe it's a night walk, a march, maybe it's a day march, whatever it is. God knows what He's doing, and He's moving them from place to place. Either three million Israelites, if you believe the bigger number, or seventy thousand, if you believe the smaller number, whatever it is. The whole nation was on the march when God told them to march, and they they went where He took them. And and we don't know all the details. We imagine obviously God has God's aware of all the the nations that are surrounding them and armies coming from different directions. And, uh, you know, it was very easy for Israel to avoid enemies or encounter enemies as God wished. He would take them where they needed to be, either to fight a battle or to avoid a battle or whatever it needed to be. They were moving where God told them to move. And, and also, this is a text clearly that was written years later with hindsight, talking about all the days of their journey, like uh, verses that are attached later uh, towards the end of Moses' life, maybe among the final things he ever wrote. Okay? Or possibly among the verses that Joshua added after Moses died. Because there were verses that were added at the end of Deuteronomy after Moses died. That's fine. The same Holy Spirit is inspiring Joshua after, like he inspired Moses to write this, uh, these verses in our Bibles. And there's even reference to this in um, Nehemiah. And this is with a lot of hindsight. When Ezra and Nehemiah are bringing Israel back from the Babylonian captivity, we're talking centuries later, okay? Even not quite a millennia later, but quite a while later from, um, from uh, the Exodus. Yeah, really a millennia later from the 1440s BC to the, to the, four, the 500s and 400s BC. So almost a thousand years later. But the description in Nehemiah chapter 9, verses 16 through 21. Our fathers acted arrogantly. They became stubborn and would not listen to your commandments. They refused to listen and did not remember your wondrous deeds which you had performed among them. These are some curious verses too, and I'm glad we have these in, the, in our Bibles. So they became stubborn and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. That's the rebellion after Kadesh Barnea when they decide to fire Moses and pick out new leaders and go back and be slaves again. And, uh, and God says, no, you're not doing that. You're not going to fire Moses. And you're not going back to Egypt. But you are a God of forgiveness, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. And you did not forsake them, 
Even in all their failures, you did not forsake them. Even when they made for themselves a calf of molten metal and said, this is your God who brought you up from from Egypt and committed great blasphemies. You and your great compassion did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud did not leave them by day. Could you imagine waking up one morning and the cloud is gone? It never happened. The cloud was always there. Every morning, every night, the, the pillar of fire was always there. It never left them to guide them on their way, nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way in which they were to go. Provides the illumination, you see, in the darkness. You gave your good spirit to instruct them. Your manna you did not withhold from their mouth. You gave them water for their thirst. We saw that communion verse today where they struck the rock. The rock was following them. The rock was Christ. They had water everywhere they went. Indeed, for 40 years you provided for them in the wilderness and they were not in want. Their clothes did not wear out, nor did their feet swell. Can you imagine this? Okay. You know, anybody have a shirt, a favorite shirt that they had 40 years ago and they're still wearing it today? That's a different story, don't get me going. But in this case, the same clothes, the same shoes. Imagine hiking through the desert for 40 years and you've got the same pair of shoes. And they're in perfect condition as the day you first put them on. The clothes do not wear out, nor do their feet swell. It's just glorious. All right. Then uh, it goes on to talk about other things there in, uh, in Nehemiah. But I just like those verses as well, describing the, uh, the closing here of the book of Exodus. Okay. Well, there we have it. That's day 47. That's, uh, that's what we're dealing with here today. Do I take questions? Do I do more Logos demos? We've got 10 minutes. Let me show you some more Logos demos. All right, let me show a few things here too. Um, One thing that was commented on was this current notebook, I'm not publishing the book introductions that got us in trouble 20 years ago, okay? But somebody was asking, where can those be found? So let me show you where those can be found. Um, It is called Talk Through the Bible by Bruce Wilkinson. Yes, the same Bruce Wilkinson that um, published the Walk Through the Bible that I think he stole it from other sources, but he made millions on it, so good for him. Um, but this talk through the Bible, let me give you this. Talk through the Bible by Bruce Wilkinson and Kenneth Boa are the author's names. Okay, If you want that, um, I, I, I enjoy these book introductions. In fact, I used 65 out of the 66 of them. The, the one that I have a problem with is Song of Solomon. I think it's totally wrong on Song of Solomon and I didn't even bother printing it. Okay, But the, uh, the other book introductions are pretty good. So for each one of these, you would have a book introduction that has uh, what's the book about, who wrote it, when was it written, what's the outline like. And it's very graphical, and I, and I really enjoyed this because I'm a visual person. And so um, this was the, uh, the chart for Genesis, for example. Four events, four people. Creation, fall, flood, and nations. That's kind of a neat way to outline that. The four events of chapters 1 through 11. And then four people, starting in Genesis 12, taking you from Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. 
So you can think your way through Genesis there with four uh, events and four people. And then you have topics, and you have place, and you have time. Of course, that's a Masoretic date from 4004. That's the Usher chronology. We improved upon that with the Septuagint dates. 5500 B.C., ballpark, instead of 4000 B.C. for Adam. Curious how you have over 2,000 years, and then you have 193 years, and then you have 93 years. Anyway, this is where I've gotten most of those book introductions for the original 2002 notebook, and I'm not repeating those for this notebook. So I don't know at what point uh, I may write book introductions of my own and insert them uh, for the final notebook when the year is done. Um, haven't, uh, haven't worked that out yet. But that's where you're going to find that. Also, let me show you again this. Uh, let me close all these. I keep telling you about this fact book. This fact book for so many things, okay? Fact book for tabernacle, fact book for whatever. Wherever the last thing is you were looking at, next time you open the fact book, it's going to go right back to there again, okay? That's why I was kind of embarrassing last week when I opened up the fact book and it had bestiality in there from uh, a study I was doing in the book of Leviticus, okay? It's coming up next in two weeks from now. We're going to be in Leviticus 18. We're going to be dealing with some pretty ugly topics. Um, but yeah, I was a little embarrassed when I popped that fact book open in class the other night and had, had the bestiality article on there. But let's talk about the Exodus. Okay? Book of Exodus. Again, you got the, the header information at the top. You got the key article. And then within the key article itself is, is outstanding information. Uh, it happens to come from the Lexham Bible Dictionary. You all have that in your Logos collections. That's a part of every Logos collection. And, it, and they're all very well done. They're written from conservative standpoints. They're written from the traditional views uh, related to things. Further reading, media, events. All right. Scroll down, and it, it bugs me that it's like the fourth or fifth panel down, but it's well worth scrolling down and find this for any book of the Bible you're looking at. And it's called the Bible Book Guide. It's called the Bible Book Guide. And it is a panel. Let me scroll back up just a touch. There we go. The Bible Book Guide. It's a panel inside the fact book. Okay? And it's not there for a lot of fact book entries, but it's there for any book of the Bible fact book that you're, that you're pulling up. Okay? But the Bible book guide, and it has these headings, content, origin, background, objects, canon, form, meaning, additional information. And for each of these sections, okay, you can get a marvelous uh, an overview, an outline. All of these come in the content panel. And this is like your little research assistant, your little elf buddy, right? Your, uh, your research uh, Keebler elf buddy that's helping you do your studies on this. And for the overview, for the outline, it's finding in your library, like the Word Biblical Commentary has an overview, the Holman Concise Bible Commentary has an overview, the Bible Reader's Companion has, the Bible Guide has an overview. It's finding overviews that are already published so you can very quickly scan them, see them for what they are, pick the one that works best for what you're, what you're using, what you're dealing with. And when they contradict each other, that's fine. You, you see where they contradict, you see why they take different views, and you, you, um, you go with what you go with based on your own research, your own study. Same thing with outline. There's some outlines that are crummy. 
And then there's some outlines that make sense to you. You say, okay, that one makes sense to me. I like that one better. Go with what makes sense to you. Okay? Contents. Then in the origin, this is where you have authorship and date. And you can have all the different views of authorship, including the, 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 the good views, Moses wrote this, or the liberal views that tell you all the, the documentary hypothesis and all of the other garbage that's out there that don't believe that there is a God that thinks that this was compiled later on after the captivity and blah, blah, blah. So you can read your conservative sources, you can read your liberal sources, you can read the people that have the high view of the canon, like we do, and you can read the people that have the very low view of the canon, like the liberal uh, scholarship that's out there. Read them for what they are. You're going to notice these get start to get ranked higher based upon the ones that you you open more often, and they're ranked lower based upon the ones you, you rarely open at all. So over time, your conservative resources will gradually rise to the top, and your liberal wastes of time will gradually be moved down lower in, uh, in different ways. But then there's the date, the background, the purpose and themes, all of that. You've got a background tab there, historical background for the Exodus. A lot of these are some of my favorite. The Bible knowledge commentary, the word biblical commentary, the um, different historical content if you want to learn more about the magicians of Egypt. Okay, the recipients, the location, the objects, the canon. This one can be useful too. Um, the Pentateuch's not really controversial, but there are other books that may be in question. Esther, for example. Does Esther belong in the canon? And who thought so? Who didn't think so? Who had a problem with, with Esther being in the canon? Who had a problem with Hebrews being in the canon? Who had a problem with, with Second Peter being in the canon? There were other books of the Bible that gendered, uh, that generated discussion in the early centuries of their acceptance that wasn't universally accepted. And then there's other books of the Bible, by the way, that eventually found their way into Catholic Bibles or eventually found their way into Coptic Bibles or into Eastern Orthodox Bibles. Why do they have a different canon than we do? How does that work? So the canonicity tab is useful in defining the relationship, the placement, the canonicity, the historicity, and so forth. So all of that is to say... Um, this Bible background, this Bible book guide, which everybody has in their Logos installation, this Bible book guide is better than anything I'm going to write or put into the Through the Bible notebook uh, at the end of the year. All right, Which is why I'm thinking, do I even bother doing this? Or do we, I still think I want to put something on paper to say, picking and choosing between the, the more accurate views and the less accurate views, um, you know, this is my faith conviction, this is my understanding. Moses wrote the Pentateuch because Jesus said Moses wrote the Pentateuch. I'm going with that, okay? Because Jesus died on the cross and saved me. And uh, if he said something, I believe it. If these liberal Germans say something else, well, they didn't die on the cross and save me, and, uh, and they're not God-breathed and inspired. So uh, I take what they say with a big grain of salt. Does that make sense? And one more thing, I'm going to close in prayer here in a moment. I, I, take, I talk a lot about liberal and conservative. Liberal and conservative, okay? That's not political. That's theological, okay? And so I'm not bashing Democrats or, or whatever. I'm, I'm talking about liberal and conservative in theology. 
and, and conservative theology uh, it has a high view of Scripture and has a high reverence for the Word of God because God Himself has a high reverence for the Word of God. That's the conservative view. What does the text say? What is the literal meaning of the text? If the text says it, then I'm accountable. That's the conservative view. And it's not different from the conservative political view that holds to the Constitution. What does the Constitution say? Constitution says that? All right, I'm subject to the Constitution. Okay? Then there's the liberal view. Liberal theology doesn't care what the text says. Liberal theology ignores the text. Liberal theology is like, well, that was back then, or well, that's, that's, that's primitive, or well, you know, it's flawed, or well, that's just human tradition. Liberal theology ignores what the text says, and here's what they, and they rewrite it to what they want it to say. Here's what it should say. Women should be pastors. Even though the text says they can't be, we want women to be pastors, so we're going to ignore the text, and we're going to make it say what we want. That's liberal theology. Okay? Do you see the, do you see the parallels? Do you see? Because liberal politics does the same thing. They don't care what the Constitution says. Here's what they want it to say. Here's what they're going to pretend it says. Okay? So really, it's, it's, a fun, it's a hermeneutic is what it is. It's a reverence for the text, or it's a hatred of the text, and it's a promotion of self over the text. Liberal theology, an exaltment of self over the Bible text, just like liberal politics over the constitutional text, whereas conservative Conservative theology is subject to the text of the Word of God. It's God-breathed and inspired. It's, we're accountable, every jot, every tittle. Same thing with the Constitution. Okay? So while I, I'm trying not to be political when I'm talking about liberals and conservatives, most of the time when I'm up here I'm talking about the theologians. I'm talking about how their reverence for the text of the Word of God. And, and, and you reach a point, like with these German higher critics and with all the, the intersectional non-theology theologians of today, it's pathetic. They have such a low regard of Scripture. Why bother calling it a Bible? Why bother? Why, why do you care what the text says? You're going to ignore it anyway and make it say what you want it to say. So why bother reading it? That's what it comes right down to. And this is the battle we're going to face. And in the coming months and years and generations and what have you, as conservative evangelical Christians, when this gets called hate speech by human courts, and when we are guilty of crimes by preaching Leviticus 18, for example, on homosexuals and bestiality and all of that, uh, when that becomes illegal and we stay faithful to the text, we've got to be prepared to, to pay that cost, to bear that price. And uh, when we will, I know we will. All right, so that's the message there. So now instead of being short, we've gone long. And uh, apologies for that. Let's close in prayer. Father, I thank you for this day. And I thank you for this through the Bible year, our seventh Sunday, you know, our seventh Sunday in this marvelous blessing. And Father, you've brought us through Genesis, you've brought us through Job, you've brought us through Exodus. And now, Father, in the coming week, we've got a couple of more kind of intro transition chapters in Numbers. But really, um, the table is set, and we are about to get uh, we are about to get Leviticus, Father. And that's always the killer for Bible reading calendars. It's the killer for a lot of things. But not this year, Father. This year uh, the notes are, are ready and the study is exciting and, and we're going to learn from Leviticus in uh, all the glory that you've designed it for. I thank you, Father, for um, 
all of your grace and all of your faithfulness each step of the way. We give you the praise and the glory in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.